1: I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to My Favorite Murder. I'm Bridger Weiniger. I host the podcast I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right, and Every week, I invite a guest on, and then they try to ruin my day by breaking my no-gift rule. So, we have a lot of fun, we have some very funny guests, and I get a lot of gifts, so feel free to listen or don't. It's up to you. Now, I I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, I wish he were Karen in Georgia. And, look, I wish I were Karen in Georgia, too, but there's really nothing I can do about that. There's nothing you can do. Just... Imagine I'm your babysitter your parents hired after they've already gone through their nine first choices. So I'm very excited to be guest hosting today. I can still remember years ago when Karen told me she was going to be starting a podcast about murder with her friend, Georgia. And I thought, oh, that sounds nice. I'm sure they'll have fun. And now here we are years later. My favorite murder has at least 11 listeners. And, uh, you know, I was a fool. Now here's the show. So, I had two choices of Karen's stories. The first was the International Dunes Hotel Murders, which, growing up in Salt Lake City, was legendary. We would drive past that hotel all the time and talk about how the swimming pool was haunted. That's not what I'm going to talk about. I settled on another story uh, from episode 76, and it's very close to my heart because I was the person who suggested it to Karen. And I, I believe this is still the Only murder I've suggested to Karen that she wasn't already aware of. You have to be careful, you know, when you bring up murder stories with Karen, because she knows all of them. She's the genius. She's the encyclopedia. So it's a bit of a badge of honor that I knew one murder she wasn't familiar with. It's another story I heard mentioned of growing up in Utah, and I don't want to give away too much because it's got twists and Karen tells it so well. She really tells it perfectly, better than other People who have tried to tell this story, in my opinion. But I will say it does involve some of my favorite things. Things like Radio Shack, fraud, deep financial trouble, talking salamanders, and also someone named Button. Very special. Also, Karen says, look at this rat bastard, which I feel like would make a great t-shirt. Just putting a merch idea out there. And now here is the murderers of Master Forger. Mark Hoffman,
0: okay, mine is uh, it's hard sometimes, as we've talked mm. about to get for me to get my homework done. no, it's yeah, and Amen. especially when I will work on something for a while, and then if I have a friend who goes, "Have you ever heard of this one?" I will switch yeah. immediately and go do my friend i switch I switch you know
2: you're halfway done it's not like you're just reading about it, no, I switch all the time, yeah.
0: And and so many of these stories, because you know, you guys are just as into true crime, if not more than either of us. So oftentimes you feel like I'm only telling a third of this story. I know there's so much more. I should have read an entire book about this, whatever. That's what other people do. Um, (laughs) So sometimes I'll bail just because I know a story has much more to it yeah. and I should invest more time. You're not going to give it just do it justice. Right, exactly. Someone else already has. But this one was so juicy and I loved it so much. My friend Bridger is the one who told me about it. He's a hilarious, he's very famous on Twitter and he's a great uh, writer. And he uh, grew up in Utah. So he was like, Have you ever heard of this one? And I had mm. never heard. Anything about it mm. turns out there's a forensic files there's lots of stuff there's um, an amazing book but anyway i'll just give you I'll give you what I know so. We're, at Salt, we're in Salt Lake City. Okay. What's this? Is, there call, is it called anything? I'm not going to call it anything okay. because yeah, yeah, yeah. I usually do that and then I end up giving it yes, away. Yes, I totally understand. Okay. That. So we're in Salt Lake City the morning of October 15th, 1985. Okay. And a man named Steve Christensen, who is a businessman, a husband, a father of four, and a bishop of the Mormon Church, he arrives at his office on the sixth floor of the Judge Building in downtown Salt Lake City. One time I did a story. And it was that horrible one yeah. about the woman throwing her kids off the top of oh, the hotel in Utah in Salt Lake City, even. Right. And in that, Ugh. I threw out the the random idea that it was a very uh, because, you know, all of Utah, I assume, is very Mormon. Mm-hmm. That Salt Lake City would be a conservative town. Mm-hmm. Well i was couldn't have been more wrong about that and would like to say now i now know because of making that mistake that actually salt lake city is the like liberal part of utah and it's a college town and it's the hip place and hmm. it's probably best case scenario and if you're looking for i don't know a great shirt or um really cool flats i'm not i don't know <laughs> so Steve Christensen gets to his office. He sees a brown-wrapped box-shaped package in front of his office door, and his name's written on top of it. He picks it up, and it immediately immediately explodes. Oh, fuck. Here, I thought it was something else,
2: and this is fucking... Let's do this.
0: Yeah. So, it was a pipe bomb. Steve is killed... The Department of Alcohol, Tobacco and Fire. Yeah, it's it was a pipe bomb that was made with concrete nails were inside and concrete nails are the nails you use to pound in. They're not made of concrete. They're the really strong industrial sized nails that you pound into (sighs) concrete. So the person that made this pipe bomb wanted the person who picked it up to be killed. Wow, what a bummer. Yeah. So the ATF officers (laughs) arrive. They begin to piece the bomb back together to figure out that it's a pipe bomb. And that was activated by a mercury switch that would go off when the package was picked up oh. and tilted one way or the other. So. So the minute the mercury like shifts. Exactly. It's in a little glass circuit. Uh-huh. And if it in it is laying on one side mm-hmm. of this little glass thing. And then when you pick it up, if you put it and <gasps> chip it one way or the other, the circuit connects and that's when the bomb explodes. Wow. So they know from a bomb like that that the person Uh, That the bomber dropped that box off because they would have to make sure it stays exactly the way it is. And they couldn't mail it. Yeah, you can't just give it to somebody else. Okay. So, also inside the bomb were Tandy brand batteries, which is, as many RC enthusiasts know, (laughs) Tandy is the Radio Shack brand of uh, batteries. Really? Uh Uh-huh. Um... So they start going around to the local radio shacks trying to find out who's bought batteries there, you know, the past week or whatever. Mm -hmm. They also find out that Steve Christensen had recently worked at a financial company called CFS, which after doing huge business in the 70s and the early 80s had started losing money and was in serious trouble. So this is the part that I actually found really interesting because so... The 80s were like a time of big money. That's mm-hmm. when everybody pretended to be rich and preppies. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was like very Izod Coke time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And apparently Salt Lake City in that time was a hotbed for financial fraud. Really? Yeah. So what people would do, con men would go to Salt Lake City and they would Kind of like get, get into the Mormon church. They would either pretend they were Mormons mm. or they would befriend higher ups in the Mormon church. And then when they would do business, they would s- like say they were in securities mm-hmm. or whatever stocks, bond. They
2: like, I got a ground floor fucking thing to get in on. Exactly.
0: And then the elders or whoever in the church would be like, Oh, this guy is, yeah. is trustworthy. <gasps> and so then all the prisoners or Mormons, I'm not sure what you call. The general word for, it, but all the people in that church would then trust that person and buy into whatever thing that that person was bringing to the table, whether it was high finance or also very popular pyramid scheme vitamin sales. Got to be very popular. What the fuck back then? Yeah, so it was kind of an there was lots of Amway low grade Amway um, kind of bullshit going on. Did they get the vitamins? (laughs) <laughs> did they ever get the vitamins did they ever get the vitamins they needed i don't know but it was a it was a kind of thing they call it affinity fraud and it happens in lots of different wow. different kinds of religions this is why my money is under my bed right you and trust no one yeah um it's the same it's the the assumption that quote unquote one of your own is going to look out for your right. best interest as opposed to an outsider Oh, so, i don't trust anyone do you no, I'm I'm scared of my fucking cousin is a
2: financial whatever the fuck, and I like I'm scared. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Mitch. Well,
0: because it's it's so um, anyone can tell you anything, and if you don't know exactly what's going on, you you it's a hundred percent pure
2: trust. Yeah, and if people are that into money, like they're into money and they want it, yeah. Exactly. Okay.
0: Well, um, so it's the same thing Bernie Madoff did yeah. uh to he got twenty billion dollars, as you well know, watching that documentary right? so good. um from wealthy Jewish people. A guy named Alan Stanford did it to Southern Baptists. Wow, um, he had a seven million or seven billion dollar <gasps> empire that fell. Um there was even a con man named Monroe L. Beachy who became a trusted within the Amish community, and he went to prison for orchestrating a scheme that defrauded twenty seven hundred dollars investors, many of them his friends and neighbors. What a dick. So it's just a very common practice of like this idea that your uh, religion would would stand for your good morals and that that, therefore the business is trustworthy. It's almost a
2: worse con than just, you know, clients because, yeah, these people are trusting because they because if you're in their religion, it's
0: because you believe the same things they do. You Have the same morals. They're, they're, they're going right on the inside. You know, they're not just standing out and like rolling the dice that maybe you'll believe them and maybe not. They're, they're asking you. They're playing on your ultimate faith. Yeah. Um, which is very ugly. And, and, um, in the Mormon religion, I believe a lot, I know lots of Mormons. I've grown up. I grew up with Mormons. Um, one of my good friends that I used to work with, Betsy, is a Mormon. And, you know, it's, it's a very, um, moralistic. They, the life they live is really the, the whole idea of it is that you live this life based on your faith. So yeah. it's like, my friend just said it the other day. He's like, Mormons really walk the walk. Yeah. So it's not just, and I may, maybe I'm only saying this because of all those like design websites that you see these days. And when you trace them back, it's like a young Mormon family, yeah. but it's like the most beautiful, you know, table setting yeah. and the cutest design. Yeah. And it's like, here's a great thing for your baby. I've heard so many
2: bloggers, like famous bloggers or like the big ones that have beautiful websites are Mormon for some reason. Yeah,
0: Because it's kind of like, it's the whole idea of like home building yeah. and like
2: putting the best into your home. Right. And being ambitious and always having something anyways yeah
0: yeah I mean these are insane generalizations obviously we're not speaking for every single person that's in the religion but there is just there's something to that (laughs) there's something to that Um, where there's a there is a there seems to be an innocence that that in the 70s and 80s con men were like oh we can exploit this this community this sense of community that they have two hours after Steve Christensen's attack there's another bombing <gasps> at the home of Gary and Kathy Sheets. Gary Sheets was Steve Christensen's boss at CFS. And his wife, Kathy, was the one who picked up the package. It exploded in her hands and she was killed. Oh, my God. I never heard of this. I know. Um, so now the police are thinking that these bombings are related to the failed CFS business dealings. And so it could be uh, retaliation yeah. from an old employee or even the mafia. Oh, my God. Um, Police talked to the Sheets' 13-year-old next-door neighbor who saw a tan minivan pull into the Sheets' driveway the night before around midnight and thought it was suspicious. But all he saw was the car. He didn't see anybody um, anybody get in or out. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they also talked to a jeweler who, who worked on the fifth floor of the judge building, one floor below Steve Christensen's office. Mm-hmm. Um, his name is Bruce Passy, and he tells the police that the morning, the morning of the bombing, um, he got into the elevator with his father, and there was a man standing in the elevator wearing a letterman jacket, but with no letter on it. Hmm. And he was holding a brown, like, paper-wrapped box that said, to Steve Christensen on the top of it. Oh, shit. And so he, um, uh, Bruce Passy describes this man to the police, um, saying he's a white male, five foot eight, medium brown hair. The next day, there's a third bombing. Uh, This time, it's inside a car, and the victim is seriously injured, but he's not killed. Mm -hmm. It's 30-year-old Mark Hoffman. He is rushed to the... Uh, hospital um, where he's in critical condition but he ends up being able to tell the police that he'd opened his car door and the package was sitting on the driver's seat with the action of opening the door it <gasps> fell off and exploded. Oh good so he didn't get the full impact. Right it. but he had a fingertip blown off. Uh, he had a huge um, wound in his knee where parts of the explosives went into Ooh. his knee like Ow. his knee area um, so he was he was pretty badly injured but this but immediately the police are suspicious because if he had his fingers blown off that doesn't that means that the box was in his hands mm-hmm. not on the seat mm-hmm. and, and then tumbling to the ground mm-hmm. um also with the direction the guy in forensic files explains it really well but it's basically the way they know bombs explode in the directions yeah. they go if the thing was in his knee, then he could not have been standing outside of the car. He must have been inside of the car leaning over. And so they basically reconstruct it. I wanna watch that. I'm like trying to picture it in my head and like basically they with the trajectory of the stuff that yeah. flew out of the bomb which hit him, they realize he must have been leaning over the center console holding the box. <clears throat> And basically inside the car. So his story, why would you lie about that? Why wouldn't you just tell him exactly? I love when cops figure that out. Like this person
2: killed themselves. And it's like, no, the trajectory, like yours last week, the trajectory shows that that person couldn't have killed themselves
0: and and that's the relatively new forensic part that's like what forensic files is all celebrating because it's like we you would never have known that until forensics comes in Mm. and and is like hold up so the police search um mark hoffman's house and they find a letterman jacket just like the one that bruce passy said the guy in the elevator was wearing Mm -hmm and they also find they also see that he has a tan minivan oh shit and there's gunpowder that they find traces of around his house that match the brand used in all three bombings well there you go so mark hoffman maintains his innocence says he's the victim um and he demands to take a lie detector test and he does they give him a lie detector test and he passes with flying colors oh shit! yeah So the police start looking into who this guy really is. So Mark Hoffman was born in Salt Lake City on December 7th, 1954, raised in a strict Mormon household. He was a mediocre student, um, but later he was tested to have an IQ of one hundred and sixty nine. Wow. Which is insanely high. That's one point over mine. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like. In stories I've read, people who are, like, mad geniuses are usually in, like, the mid-130s to 140s. I was going to say that. Like, I feel like very, very, very fucking smart
2: is, like, 130. I think so. But, like, then genius is, like, 160-something.
0: And maybe. I like us trying to guess what genius IQ of <laughs> <laughs> in the dumbest way we Well, can. I know when my brother was a kid
2: with fucking attention... Issues they tested him and he had like one very high up there because it's like, well, he's just fucking bored. Yes, that's why. So, yeah, and I never, I was not that smart (laughs) and I was never bored. No, I was always bored. You're like, this is fascinating, just bored,
0: (laughs) not smart and bored. Um, okay, so he collected coins as a teenager and. When he was when he was young, uh, oh, that, that's a weird cut and paste. He collected coins <laughs> as a teenager, and uh, at some point he forged a rare mint mark on a dime that was verified by an organization <gasps> of coin collectors to be genuine. And when he was a kid, he tricked the shit out of fucking professional coin people. Exactly. He got he got the uh, taste early of like you know. It's impressive. I think so too. They just don't kill people next. I mean. So in, seven, in 1973, he volunteered um, to spend two years in, as an LDS missionary. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he came back from his mission, which was in England, he enrolled as a pre med major at Utah State University. Um, he married Dora Lee Old in 1979. They eventually have four children together, and she filed for divorce in 1987. Hmm. Um, so in 1980, Hoffman claims to have found a 17th century King James Bible with a document inside that um, he claimed to be the transcript uh, that Joseph Smith's, who was the founder of the Latter-day Saints uh, Church. Um, he had a scribe named Martin Harris and uh, was supposed to be a, a transcript that Martin Harris brought to uh, a Columbia classics professor in 1828 that was originally copied by joseph smith from the golden plates from which he translated the book of mormon so i'm going to say this probably incorrectly but the general idea of the founding of the uh, church of jesus christ latter-day saints is joseph smith found golden tablets that he dug up and from those tablets he wrote down Mm -hmm. the tenets of the religion okay um and a a an angel appeared to him as he dug up those tablets to help him. Okay. Um, so, basically... He presents this document. They freak out because they're like, they'd never, it's a historical document from their church. They'd never seen before. And the, um, the church ends up buying it from Hoffman for $20,000. Fuck. So this not only sets him, uh, financially, but it also sets his reputation as a historical documents dealer. I wonder where he said he found it. Oh, is that? Inside a of King James Bible. So oh, he, okay. So he was already, um, trying to become like a historical Historical book, okay. Dealer. So one of the book, okay. One of, that makes sense. It was a really old. It was a 17th century King James Bible. Damn. So then it was like inside that. Got it. Got it. Okay. Um. So basically, he then starts um, for the next several years selling forged, quote unquote, lost uh, LDS documents to the church. Um, The most notorious notorious of which was the salamander letter in 1984 so he basically starts forging pieces of historical text and bringing them to the church and as as a church member himself going i found this i found this now the church is part of it is like a little bit like oh yeah we need to we need to be owning these papers right. and sometimes he would donate them and sometimes they would buy them from him but essentially it was it was text that they that was relevant to them knowing about their own religion yeah. and, the, and the founder of their own religion so the one that is the most infamous is the salamander letter which basically said that when joseph smith dug up those tablets it wasn't an angel that appeared to him, but a white salamander. Mm. so so that was such a change of the historical record, and they had never heard that before. They'd never heard oh. it before. It was super freaky, and it was kind of like they didn't know if they should announce it. It put them in a really weird position, yeah because suddenly it's 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 a very non-religious sounding, and almost like a magical witchy yeah. sounding version of the story of how their church is founded. Right. That's a sal- salamander was kind of like not as cool as a snake. Is it a snake? <laughs> no. Uh, well, but snakes are in, the in like, Christian religion yeah. are evil. Right. So there's but there's just something weird about it's an albino salamander, like, as opposed to an angel. Man, I think he could have done better. I, well. A bear. So <laughs> an albino bear. A blue bear. A blue bear. Um, well, it turned out he was actually forging all of these documents, and he had lost his faith when he was a teenager, like he went on his mission, basically he felt a lot of pressure from his family because he was raised in such a strict Mormon household, but he was trying to embarrass the church. So he was writing these documents and changing these stories and basically adding in little inconsistencies and mistakes so that the church would kind of be scrambling and not knowing what their official approach should be. And he, and he was like a master forger because he had already um, sold, let's see this, here's the list. He'd forged unpublished poems by Emily Dickinson, (laughs) um, signatures signatures of Mark Twain, a full handwritten letter, uh, supposedly written by Betsy Ross. No. Um, he tricked the Library of Congress He tricked Sotheby's wow. He sold signatures by George Washington John Adams, John Quincy Adams Daniel Boone, John Brown Andrew Jackson wow. Nathan Hale, John Hancocks, Francis Scott Key Abraham Lincoln, John Milton. Like, all, wow, all this here. guy is so lucky. He just finds all this shit. Yeah. And makes a shit ton of money off of it. There was somebody named Button Gwinnett. No, whose there wasn't. His signature was the rarest and therefore the most valuable of any signer of the Declaration of Independence. The
2: guy named Button signed the Declaration of Independence. Or girl. <laughs> oh, sure. No, no way. way.
0: <laughs> but little Button Gwinnett got up there. Aw. He also said he he claimed to have discovered. Discovered a famous document called the Oath of the Free Man, which is believed to be, or you know, some say the precursor to the Declaration of Independence. Um, it's from the 1600s, and it was worth over a million dollars. Oh my! God. But this, they never knew it existed
2: until he came. Along. They
0: knew it existed, but they didn't. Oh. There were no copies of it in in America. Okay, so he had claimed he found one, and he was trying to sell that, but it was the sale of that was kind of held up because they were questioning its authenticity. Finally, someone's yeah. like, "You know what we should do?" Well, in this it's funny because I think in the uh, forensic files they start talking about how they because it's within the church and the way he did it he he was a master manipulator mm-hmm. so he was super smart so he knew how to do it where they would not they didn't question the documents because of who he was and what right. he had already sold. Right. So it was like, well, if he sold something to the library of Congress yeah. and Sotheby's and all these places, what that, are we going to, we're going to question him. Yeah. This guy's an expert and he's a Mormon. Shit. So get him all the way in on the inside. Um, but he also would buy really expensive things. So he was always broke, even though he would make big money on selling these forgeries, mm-hmm. he would then buy like rare books and he was buying things so that, he could then right. forge other things later. Right. I mean, it's very complicated and there's a there's a book called The Poet and the Murderer by Simon Worrell mm-hmm. and that is tells the story of Mark Hoffman but specifically from the view of him Pretending to have discovered poems by Emily Dickinson and the public library in Amherst, Massachusetts, which is where she was from, collects money to buy these <gasps> heretofore unpublished uh, lost Emily Dickinson poems that were fake. Yeah. What so a he's, he is like a, he, he was like one of the greatest forgers or the, you know, most infamous forgers anyone had ever seen. I'm working it. Uh, he's doing it. So, essentially, what happened was he was trying to sell some new set of documents to the church. Steve Christensen mm. knew a little bit about... Um, antiquities Uh and old documents. And so he was questioning. He was like, I heard this guy is being uh, questioned about the oath of the Freeman. They're, they're not even sure. Like he's under investigation. We need to look closer at these papers. Calling him out. Yeah. So what he did was, He plants a bomb at Steve Christensen's office to kill him. Then he planted the other one at Gary Sheet's house Mm. to make it look like it had something to do with CFS Mm -hmm. instead of anything to do with him.
2: Shit, that's fucking tricky. Yeah. I mean, this guy is,
0: you know, tricky. He's a trickster. Uh He was eventually arrested in January of 1986, charged with a total of 27 counts, including murder, forgery, possession of an unregistered machine gun, and Jesus Christ! Yeah. That's it. (laughs) Literally, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Uh, And a salamander. So he... (laughs) Albino salamander Albino You can't forget the albino part I mean that All of their beliefs For hundreds of years Are one thing And then he gives them paper That's like It turns out an albino salamander Had a say They're like You know an angel sounds cooler So we're just gonna stick with that They're like we Now we need to have A really big meeting Then
2: what if we have to start Fucking praying to an albino s- salamander I
0: mean Would that ever even Have been a choice No they say also so he had like 600 forgeries that got sold and are in the market where they're still finding them yeah i was gonna ask yeah so they're apparently and he wrote a letter from jail explaining which things that he did were forgeries because some things obviously when he started out he kind of there were valid ones so um but they're saying that they're like there's um some daniel boone signatures out there um that are fake that like there's there's um because there were hardly any in the first place but then mark hoffman comes along and suddenly there's four that are in the marketplace which brings the value down right um and it turns out you know three of them aren't real do you think that his
2: forgeries are now worth money a lot of money Mm. to murderino types yeah or like is there a forger's museum i'd go to that
0: I would too. I mean, I think overall the historical signatures are going to be worth the most. Of course. Because they're like the, you know,
2: but I feel like, some, there's gotta be like the Smithsonian or some kind of thing that's just like you know it's look, history
0: look at this rat bastard yeah, look, in look, that department look, look what happened yeah yeah. I just think it's funny that he did it so much and when you see the paper like he would bake the paper in the oven yeah I was gonna ask like the a lighter edges. yeah exactly <laughs> like <laughs> like an on. old western yeah Um. all that they found all this you know they found ink that he specifically mixed mm. to match but then the when the um, the guy who finally started investigating it forensically, he was like the new ones all glow blue underneath a microscope mm-hmm. because they're new. Yeah. And so he was just really easily able to, once they knew, yeah. start investigating all of them and just be like, none of this is real. Yeah. I Sorry. This letter from Betsy Ross.
2: That's crazy. I bet he'd be good at the lettering challenge. <laughs> he might he, be. He's got to have good handwriting.
0: He would add in... <laughs> He'd be like, I believe that this is a real. Um, <laughs> I don't know where I was going, but anyhow, he initially maintained his innocence. Uh, but at a pl- preliminary hearing, the prosecutors showed so much evidence of his forgeries and his debts And all of the evidence linking him to the bombs that instead of risking the death penalty, he pled guilty to two counts of second degree murder, a count of theft by deception Mm -hmm. for the salamander letter, um, (laughs) an account of fraud for the sale of the mcclellan collection was which was that last collection he was trying to sell right when steve christensen stepped in um he confessed all of his forgeries in open court um he was in january 1988 he was sentenced to five years to life in prison he's spending life in prison
2: five yeah wow yeah. and he's still there and we can still there wow yeah that's, that's mark hoffman cool. everybody I, I, first i thought you were going like towards the ted kaczynski route when i heard about a bomb oh <laughs> to be killed by a bomb do you ever open envelopes
0: and you're like i don't know what this is going to be yes well that's my moths thing i never oh. think it's a mom um, a bomb though well I <laughs> or a mom <laughs> <laughs> just a mom coming to tell me to Hi. sweep up the kitchen honey <laughs> do those dishes oh
2: what is that fear they're just sitting there you let them soak for too long yeah You can't just let things soak in cold water, Karen.
0: It's true. But also this was the 80s when like this was back when you could walk into an office building with a plain package. I feel like, you know, as worrisome as it all sounds, we don't live in that world anymore. It's like that was definitely a very pre 9-11 era. Yeah. Except I. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But maybe not. You know what I mean?
0: Well, I'm I'm scared. I know, I know. (laughs) You can be. Um, Wow, that's fucked up. Good job. Thank you. There's something about the sound of an old-timey cash register that really takes me back.
2: I know. It sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream cone, but it also sounds like we just sold some merch. That's right. And if you're a Shopify user like us, you know that this sound
0: MadeInCookware.com That's
2: M-A-D-E-I-N Cookware.com
0: Goodbye
1: Wow Now isn't that a Well I don't want to say Wonderful story But it is an incredible tale And you know You don't get a lot of murder And talking salamanders Combined So I, I love it I absolutely love it And I still feel like There's room in the world For a religion Started with a Talking salamander Somebody should Think about it. Now, I want to get into George's story, which is also fascinating. It's the sleepwalking murderer from episode 160. This one is truly a wild story, and as someone in a relationship with a man who sleepwalks, a little bit personal for me. It's, uh, you know, I, I live in terror because of this story. And all I'm saying is that if my boyfriend ends up killing me in his sleep, I want this guest hosting episode of My Favorite Murder to be played in court. Now, the story involves murder. There's gambling, uh, marital trouble, someone waking up covered in blood. It's got it all. I really and speaking of waking up covered in blood, I feel like if you wake up covered in anything, you're probably in trouble. So and it, oh, it's just the beginning of a great story. So let's hear Georgia tell the story now. Should we?
2: So this is mine. I was originally going to do like a three, three different topics on this three different murders on this, um, subject, but then reading the most famous one, I was like, this is a fucking story in itself. Okay. So this is the case of Kenneth Parks, AKA the sleepwalking murderer. <gasps>
0: remember? Yes. I remember. Yes, but remember? <laughs> remember, I feel like this is a combination of several different, um, investigation discovery shows mm-hmm. that I've watched. But I feel okay. Go ahead. Yeah,
2: no, I I I kind of remember it, and you first hear it. It kind of reminds me of like the the woman who spilled McDonald or McDonald's coffee on her lap, and you're like, oh, that's a you know this legend that that crazy woman. Yes. And then you see the documentary about it. I can't remember what it's called, and you're like, oh, this is legitimate. Yes. So I kind of ah, uh, you'll have to tell me what you think. But all right, so I got a lot of information from Psychology Today. There's an article by a woman named. Um, Barrett Brugard. She's a PhD, obviously, and a bunch of other letters. Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> is there an M in there somewhere? I'm sure. There a little C, is, a big C? And little
2: dots and stuff. Yeah. She's very smart. Yeah. And then also there's a paper called Homicidal Synambulism: a Case Report in the Sleep Research Society. Jeez. It's like crazy. Okay. Hey. Hey, Karen. Hey. Sleepwalking is relatively common in childhood. Did you know that? I did not. Have you ever sleptwalked? Not that I know of. Yeah.
0: But there's a good chance that I did. I woke up, was traumatized, and then just went back to sleep by myself. Lots of stuff happened yeah. in the middle of the night where my parents wouldn't get up <laughs> because I was very high maintenance right. in, in the nighttime. Sure. So my mom was always like, go to bed, go back to sleep. Yeah.
2: Um, so about 15 to 20% of all children sleepwalk. Only about 2% of children, mostly boys, weirdly, go on to be adult sleepwalkers. So it's not a huge fucking thing in adults. So um, don't try to say that yeah, it is. Exactly. Okay. Don't come at us with sleepwalking. Um, there have been about 68 cases of homicidal sleepwalking. 68? Uh huh. And like, in, throughout history. Okay. And that only goes until 2005 because that's what Wikipedia told me. Got it. Wikipedia's, I don't know if there's been one since then. Is that the year everybody stopped doing Wikipedia? <laughs> that's when everyone stopped to the <laughs> homicidal, <laughs> somnolism, and sleepwalk, and, Wikipedia. Okay. Um okay, but this is arguably the most famous one. May nineteen eighty-seven. We're outside Toronto, Canada. Um, and here's Kenneth Parks. He's a 23-year-old married man. He's married to a woman named Karen. <gasps> What's up, Karen? Um, who's she played by in the nineteen ninety-seven TV movie The Sleepwalker Killing? 97. Mm-hmm. Um uh Justine Bateman? Hillary Swank. Yes. Close. Um, same vibe yeah, yeah, yeah and they had a five-month-old daughter together and uh at the time ken is under extreme stress so the previous summer ken played by in 1997 tv movie the sleepwalker killing chad lowe charles easton which i think is weird he's the dude from nashville the, oh. the show nashville is yeah, like yeah. the hot country guy sure him okay Okay. Um So Kenan developed a gambling problem. His friends had like taken him gambling to the horse races. He was like, whatever. And then he won some money. And then he was like, oh shit, it's on. And couldn't stop fucking. <laughs> he th- got the fucking fever. He got the horse race fever. Okay. And so he quickly fell into deep fucking debt. To cover these debts, he starts taking money from he his and Karen's savings. I think he forges a couple checks as well.
0: Uh, like, I'm getting a debt stomachache. Are you okay? <laughs> it's just. I know the feeling of being that in debt. You're in debt. And then you're, you're doing something pretending it's going to solve it when you know, deep down, it will not help.
2: But there's no other way to fix it as quickly as
0: if you did win. Yes. I actually, there was one um, month where I did not have my rent. And I honestly considered there was somebody that I knew like very tangentially and through comedy whose father was a professional gambler. And I almost called him to say, can I please give you $200 just to see if your dad could turn it into something?
2: I mean, his dad, if he were any good, would say no.
0: I would That's hope. insane, <laughs> but also the guy would be like, "Hey, since you never talk to me, right. go fuck yourself." Right. Is probably what would have happened. Wow, yeah, um, scary feeling. Sad solution. My solution was never get a job. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? <laughs> well, Ken's solution
2: um, is that he began to steal from his employer. He, where he worked uh, in electronics, so he's just fucking trying to, you know, win back the money constantly, but he keeps losing it all. And by the time his employer finds out about the fact that he's been stealing, he finds out they find out in March 1987, he's stolen thirty-two thousand dollars from them. Shit, that's too much money. Also,
0: that means he's stealing and betting and stealing. That means he's
2: in debt, probably triple that. Yeah, that's just how much he's taken. Yes. Obviously, he's fired and he's charged with fraud, and but he's awaiting trial, so he's out. But, Ugh, but
0: this is real stress. Here we go. This isn't just like, oh, I'm ner, I'm slightly nervous. And he has
2: a five month old daughter too. At the same time, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so before getting into this debt, though, Ken had a good marriage to Karen, and he had a really good relationship with her parents, forty two year old mother in law Barbara Ann, who knows how old he is. Dennis Woods, the
0: fa- the father in law, he was interestingly eighteen. <laughs> Isn't that neat? It's kind of... It's a sexy little... You, we can do it, ladies. Yeah. In our 40s. Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> Marsha. <laughs> uh, Cynthia. Cynthia Marsha.
2: Uh, let's see. Okay. Part of the reason why... And her parents fucking adore him part of that reason is because they had gotten married really young and when karen and ken first met she was a runaway and ken convinced her to return home so they were like ken thank you so much for getting us our baby back and we're so grateful for it we love you everything. Um, and by all accounts, he was a super sweet dude. She, Barbara and the mother-in-law called him her gentle giant. And it kind of seemed like they were this like replacement for his parents because his parent, he wasn't close to his parents ever. And they, they kind of weren't involved in his life. So he, you know, he had this lovely in-law set. Of parents, yeah, you know. And they said that he was closer with Karen's parents than his own. Mm. Okay, but after losing his job because of all that fucking money, remember, Ken is is unshamed. (laughs) That's not true. He's proud? He's the opposite of unshamed. (laughs) He's deeply shamed. Completely shamed. And he can't find a new job and so he stops visiting Karen's parents because he's so embarrassed and doesn't want to, like, talk to them about it. And he does also continue to gamble, which, of course, makes his and Karen's marriage fucked up. So it is an addiction. It is an, it addiction. Is an addiction.
0: That's 100%. like 100%. It's so horrible. I just the idea of that where it like yeah. it defies logic and you're like, "Look, I'm super broke. Let me just gamble this
2: it money." Feels it feels like you have hope when you're doing it. Like I've been to Vegas a few times. I feel like that could be I shouldn't live near anywhere near a place where you can gamble because it's so fun Yes, and you have this like maybe me feeling.
0: The, and that feeling For like somebody that's always wanted to be a performer or an actor Mm -hmm. gets real kicked up when you're just like, is this when I become special? (laughs) Like how many times the first time I went to Vegas with friends, when I moved to LA, Uh we drove out there, we got there within I would say two hours I had lost $300 Wow! and that I was like, I did not have money. So I was just like, Oh no, I can't do this. And then you realize
2: how boring it is there when you don't have money. Cause all there is is gamble and drink. That's all. Well, one time in like fucking 2001, I won three hundred dollars. So now it's been what a hundred years, and I'm still like, but I could maybe win, even I'm though one of those I won types, right? Yes. The
0: amount of money I've actually lost there is are, much more. Is a lot more. Can I just add one more story? Always. Because I won once on one of those oversized machines. I love those. And I, it was very odd. It was like the last day we we're gonna leave. Whatever, stuck in ten dollars. I won four hundred dollars. Wow! But you would have thought, classic me, it w- that I won four million. Oh I was just God. like, "Thank you,
2: everyone!"
0: and like reaching out to touch people and stuff. You grab someone's flowers that she's walking by and throw them at yourself. She's like, "Those are mine. Those are mine my anniversary." It was the most. And then taking the the coins from that oversized thing over to the cashier those dirty fucking disgusting ass coins you I licked every single scared. one of them i was scared to oh, death yeah. i was positive that was when the heist was gonna of take
2: course place. they want your 400 dollars. <laughs> 400 precious
0: dollars ridiculous <laughs> uh i still pay the play the lottery though okay
2: <laughs> it's fun it's so fun so yeah so that's very stressful so much fucking money um he continues to gamble though and she's like dude bro what the fuck yeah and since he had started gambling the summer before his personality had completely changed obviously he stopped socializing he uh starts to suffer from pressure headaches and he gained 70 pounds oh
0: no yeah he's
2: just like addiction central dude i relate yeah yeah he suffers from insomnia and he would only sleep for four to six hours a night which sounds like a lot of sleep to I me know, that's not bad but he slept on the couch a lot and he'd go to, you know, he'd sometimes go entire nights without sleeping at all. And then he had the fucking baby. So that's like double time, non sleepy times, you know, um, he eventually agrees to go to Gamblers Anonymous. And uh, in that May, he agreed to stop gambling and he agreed to tell um, both his grandmother about what was going on and Karen's parents, who he was super close to. He was like, all right, we'll go over there on a Sunday and I'll confront. You know, my confront them? No. (laughs) Confront myself. (laughs) No. Listen,
0: you (laughs) motherfuckers. I have a fucking gambling problem. You're making me bet on horses.
2: Right. So he agreed to do it. And he agrees to um, tell him about the upcoming trial for fucking fraud that he has going on too. So like, shit is fucking bad right now. Yeah. So the day, so it's the one of those things where it's early in the morning of the day. So 4 a.m. on Sunday morning, the day he was supposed to later that day, obviously go tell his grandmother and his beloved in-laws about what was going on. So it's May 24th, 1987. Um, the night before he, he, uh, falls asleep on the couch watching SNL at about four in the morning, he gets up from the couch where he'd been sleeping, puts on his shoes and jacket. Walks out the front door, which he left unlocked, which he never fucking did. And he drove the 14 miles to the house of his in-laws in the Toronto suburb of Scarborough. He drove, he sleep drove. Yeah. Fuck. That's if you believe this. Oh, okay. That's the other thing too, is like some people are like bullshit. Right, right. So when Ken arrives at their house, he takes a tire iron from the car trunk and he uses his key that he has to their house to open the house, goes to the bedroom of his in-laws, he first strangles his father-in-law, Dennis, until he is unconscious. Then he proceeds to beat his 42-year-old mother-in-law, Barbara Ann. 42 years old.
0: 42.
2: Um, He beats her with the tire iron and stabs her repeatedly with a kitchen knife. Oh, my God. He then stabs his father-in-law. Oh. Barbara is found in a room five to six feet away from the bedroom, and she had sustained six stab wounds through her chest. One through her shoulder blade and a fatal wound through her heart. And now it's fucking awful. I'm sorry. No. Um. Barbara dies, but Dennis survives barely. Oh Oh
0: my God. Mm -hmm.
2: And there were other kids in the house. I think teenager. I don't know who else, because they were young. They were young. They had other kids who were under in, in their teenage years. Right. And they woke up from the noise. They start yelling and, but Ken left them alone and he walked out of the house.
0: So the kids saw him. I
2: don't know if they saw. I feel like. Or they just heard the they noise. He, they heard. Maybe they saw something. They all locked themselves in their room. Oh, yeah. So that would be But sense. he went. He goes to the door and just leaves. He doesn't try to come towards them or anything like that. Right. Very weird. So it was almost like this is the mission. Yeah. The end. Yeah. 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 Okay. So from their house, he drives straight to the police station. He gets there at 4.45 a.m. He's covered in blood. He, The police say he seems distressed and he was shaking. He kept repeating, and it's fucking many times that he says this. I just killed someone with my bare hands. Oh, my God. I've just killed two people. I stabbed them and beat them to death. It's all my fault. He oh says to the, the police. Isn't that insane? Yes. Police also said that he seemed completely oblivious and not in pain of the fact that he'd severed tendons in both his hands with the knives oh he wasn't even fucking aware of it ew i know I, that... steven is gripping his <laughs> hands so tight right Steven's now He's hiding his hand if you hear skin on skin it's <laughs> <laughs> that's
0: crazy isn't that you fucking... can't fake that
2: no. Tendons. Not not being in pain. I guess like you could say something about like um adrenaline maybe. But maybe tendons. That's a bloody mess. And also you would you'd still have to be
0: conscious in some ways, right? right? I don't know. I don't buy that. Right. I don't know. No, well, maybe it's I bananas. just don't want to. I'm in denial.
2: After reading this homicidal somnambulism report, somnambulist, thank you. Um, I believe him, and I fucking didn't at first. Sure, and I was like, "Well, bullshit. I don't really buy it." But after reading that and all the details and stuff, and like that particular thing, bananas.
0: Also, oh well, I'll just throw this in really quick. To me, it seems like if you're faking it, you would go home and get back into sleep, and right. be like, "What do you mean I was up?" Like you would be playing the part right. of someone who slept walked. Yeah, because usually the picture you have of sleepwalkers is they go out, they do something, and then they come back. But he was bleeding so badly that he could have
2: been like, "Oh, I need to get to the hospital. How do I like make it seem like that?" You know what I mean? True, true.
0: So that's just an argument to that. But turning yourself in ha- right. does indicate you would have that just gone to the hospital. Holy fuck! Because it what. What if you woke up covered in blood, I mean, it's no. like, it's like that, um, there's that amazing, um, movie. It's Farrah Fawcett. It's the same. It's basically the yeah. same thing. She wakes up covered in blood and doesn't know what happened because she's a
1: blackout drunk.
0: Oh, shit. It turns out she got set up. Oh,
2: fuck. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Okay. Um yeah. but I shouldn't tell you
0: the name of the movie, so I didn't spoil <laughs> it for you.
2: No one will ever watch it. Mm-hmm. So you can't spoil something we're not gonna watch Okay. Mm-hmm. Ken is arrested and he goes to trial to face charges of first degree murder of his mother in law and attempted murder of his murder of his father in law. Um and his defense, they have to they have to say it in a certain way. It's basically temporary insanity due to sleepwalking. It's way more fucking involved than that legally, but we don't need to do that right now. Right. You get it. So, that's while, all I get. That's right. <laughs> um, while in prison, Ken undergoes all these sleep tests and psychological tests. There's an EEG scan while he's sleeping that shows that he had some abnormal brain activity during sleep. So, he did legitimately have a sleep thing and periods of partial awakenings, um, indicative of parasomnia. And it's fucking, I mean, I read a lot about this shit and like sleepwalking and sleep talking and people actually committing crimes. And, you know, a lot of them seem like, uh, oh, I don't know about that. But this one seemed legit. Yeah. He was studied uh, for months by a team of psychologists, and they determined that uh, he was in an acute state of emotional turmoil leading up to the attack. And that's what caused him to lash out and kill these people that he loved and really had nothing to gain by killing them. Right. And there was no anger or anything like that involved. It was just extreme stress.
0: Well, and they... He hadn't told them yet. They didn't know. Right. His wife is the one that knew. So, right. It seems like if right. you were going to do something to try to remove the fact yeah. from your existence, just go upstairs and kill your wife. I mean, that, to me, that would be a, that's a really good point. Thanks. You're
2: welcome. And like, yeah, that's a good point. It's almost like the thing he was so stressed about, which is telling his parent in laws is the thing he acted out on. Yes. Because that was what was in his brain. His brain wasn't functioning properly. And it was like,
0: neuron to neuron, go do this thing. It's like the fixation of if you get rid of them, you don't have to tell them. Right, right. You can see where like the fucked up brain thing messaging would be there. Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, so let's see, since there's allegedly no way to fake uh an EEG result, and since Ken had appeared to feel no pain when he arrived at the police station, it is determined that he was sleepwalking when he attacked his in-laws. So, but there's like kind of some weird shit. Like Karen said she had never seen Ken sleepwalk, which I feel like she would have. Right. She did say he was a really deep sleeper, and sometimes he she would um, talk to him, to her in his sleep. His mother said she remembered only one incident of Ken sleepwalking as a child when his brother brother grabbed his legs as he like crawled out of a window oh shit i know so like there was something going on there and ken's uh, grandfather and a lot of his family members slept walked and had some sleep issues which it is hereditary which mm. i found interesting mm-hmm. um and ch- yeah children whose parents are sleepwalkers are two to three times more likely to become sleepwalkers okay bananas and my
0: brother slept walked a little bit in his youth and yeah i don't know I did a thing one time and it was purely out of stress, but I wasn't, I was trying to go to sleep and the stress built up and then I just jumped up and ran. Mm. And it was one of the weirdest things I've ever done because I couldn't really... It was when I was still married and my husband <laughs> was like, what are you doing? And well, I was like, I oh, don't no, no, I have to get out. I have to get out. Your because body like, was like, clean sleep, clean sleep. <laughs> get out of here. You get out. Get out. And you get out. Oh, uh, yeah. It was super weird. Holy and shit. it was, it was just from like, I can't deal with this pressure anymore.
2: Yeah. <clears throat> I think stress will do that to you. Yeah. Um, at trial, Ken says he didn't remember any of the details of the attack. He said he remembered falling asleep on the couch sometimes after, sometime after midnight. His fucking next recollection is, his next thing he remembers seeing is opening his eyes and seeing his mother-in-law's frightened face. Oh. And her eyes and mouth are open. And in, while he's in prison, he is d- distraught and devastated and he's mourning this and he's just feels horrible. Um, Karen's with him during the trial. Oh. Ken says that after seeing his mother-in-law's face, he just sat there. He didn't, he just like almost like woke up then and then he heard the kids yelling and he says he thought the kids were in trouble so he said he yelled kids 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 but the kids said they only heard like grunting animal noises mm. so he thinks like he's in a dream he's talking and saying these words but they but that's almost like that's what he thought you it's know? the way somebody would if they were sleeping and right thinking that they're saying something totally yes and so also at the, for some reason Ken picked up the phone at the house and, and left it off the hook and also walked up to the bedroom of the kids, but didn't go in or try to at all. So mm. that's just a weird little, I don't know. He, Sorry. Like as he was leaving? I don't know if it was before or after. Okay. I think before he left, he went to the kids' room. I don't know what the phone. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, An Ontario Supreme Court jury deliberated for nine hours befi- before finding Kenneth Parks not guilty. Wow. The judge upheld the ruling, saying that the state had failed to establish beyond a reasonable doubt that Parks was aware of his actions, which fucking upset a lot of people. A lot of people call bullshit on it. I mean, there's really no way to tell. But f- based on what I read, I feel like it's true. But am I just like being foolish? Jesus
0: Christ. I just saw something out of the corner. <laughs> that
2: was Is someone walking a- by? A
0: ghost. Oh. Well, you know, it's funny to me. This seems like, like you're saying the lady, the McDonald's lady that in, at first pass, of course you say that because yeah. that sounds like the ultimate excuse, the best excuse. It sounds like the beginning of a date line. Totally. He was sleepwalking. And whatever. there are a bunch,
2: there are a few of those that are there. I mean, it's almost like it, to me, it kind of reminds me of the staircase where it's like, he says that she fell down this, you know, and it's like, of course he said that he fucking killed her, but yes. you know. But, and that's almost the, this one's almost worse that a fucking, that he was sleepwalking. It's like bullshit. Right. But then
0: like, what if it's true? Right. What if it's true? And, and what are the, what could actually support that? Like, and those people took all that evidence and for nine hours worked through it and went, yeah, he didn't do it. But at the same time, it's like, but he
2: did still do it. Are you not culpable at all in your sleep? Like he, is there some kind of like manslaughter or something, you know, like. He just gets to leave, he's
0: done, well, but he did go to jail, you said right, well, just during the trial, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's horrible, and yeah, uh, yeah, what do you say yeah like, what he, only he knows, I mean, like only he knows, totally,
2: um, I do know that they didn't stay married only because a murderino fucking emailed us and said that she was friends with this girl when she was younger. And uh went over to her mom and stepdad's house before and she told her about it. So they weren't married anymore, obviously. Well,
0: how could you be though? No. How totally. could you? Even if it it was the love of your life and you absolutely believed he was yeah. innocent. That's just Well he's so not hard. innocent. He still killed your parents. You're right. Yeah but I mean like that it wasn't an intentional right plan God, can you imagine sleeping next to him no, I mean Jesus well that Fuck. that alone yeah that alone we
2: just like yeah that's it's I've punched Vince in my sleep before you have you yeah <laughs> like having a dream about a fight <laughs> and I might punched him it was so bad I feel, and I'll sometimes talk mostly yell. Yell at my mom. Oh yeah, <laughs> my Janet. Janet. Um, but he did end up. I there's so hard to find any information. The, the most recent thing I found was that he was running for a spot on the district school board in 2006, which mentioned that he had six kids, ages four to nineteen, in 2006. So he wow. was in another relationship at some point, right? Yeah, and like you can't find anything else. He probably just wants to live his life. And if he fucking didn't do it on purpose, great. But also, like, can you imagine like knowing your past? You. It's crazy. It's horrifying. It's crazy. It's horrifying. Um, and that is the case of Kenneth Parks, aka the sleepwalking murderer.
0: Wow. The fuck? Yeah, that's, I mean, cause there's ones we do where it's like, they, they, you describe their childhood and it's the worst thing you've ever heard. Right. So then when they become killers, then you're like, well, I, it doesn't justify it, but I see how A plus B equals C. Right. But, so this is a version of that. It is because you're like,
2: you, I can imagine being so, under under so much stress, brought on by yourself. That's the other thing too, is like the stress he brought on was by himself. Yes. So it's also still like, well, you're culpable for that. Yeah. Are you culpable for the murder? I mean, for the the things that happened because of your choices and actions. Yes.
0: I I mean, it is, I mean, this is a real like conundrum in that way where to be, can you imagine being on that jury?
2: Oh, fuck shit oh, up. Gross. no, And probably that you, I bet there was I s-
0: sleepwalk right out of that
2: fucking jury. I'd just be like, sorry. Uh, I don't believe in sleepwalking. Goodbye. <laughs> don't believe in it. Oh, my God. I think it's an urban myth. I mean, I can't imagine staying married to the person after no. that. No, you couldn't. You yeah. couldn't. That's too much to ask. Yeah. Oh, my God. Fuck, man. Horrible. That was heavy.
0: Sorry. No. <laughs> Sorry, I just told you a horrible murder story. <laughs> oh, you mean like the theme of this podcast we've been doing for three years? That's right. Um Yeah, wow. Yeah.
1: That is a rough story to hear, I know, Uh, but I think it's... Very interesting, and also very comf- uh, comforting to hear someone else have difficulty uh, pronouncing some nam- some ambulant. That is a word I will never be able to say correctly, and it's nice that. I can hear other people struggle with it as well. So this is the end of me guest hosting. I hope you've had a wonderful time. I hope you enjoyed these stories as much as I did. And if you want to find me, again, I'm Bridger Weiniger. I host I Said No Gifts here on Exactly Right every Thursday. And uh, now I'm going to say a phrase that I just thought of and that I plan to trademark. Stay sexy and don't get murdered.
2: Elvis, do you want a cookie?